Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book Harold Sanjin by Patricia Sanjin with permission of Ten of Those Publishing Company. And we are on Chapter 3, A Workman Approved Unto God. For, ah, the Master is so fair, his smile so sweet to banished men, that they who glimpse him from afar can never rest on earth again. And they who see him risen far at God's right hand to welcome them, forgetful stand of home and land, desiring fair Jerusalem. Mr. Sanjin, said a lady coming up to him at the close of a meeting, I would give the world to know the Bible as you do. Ma'am, replied the young preacher with a courteous little bow, that is exactly what it cost. The world had nothing to say to Harold Sanjin in those days of young intensity, and he seemed to have been mistrusted even its most innocent recreations. He does recall a visit to the zoo, but he seems to have gone with a spirit far armed against any slackening. Went to the zoo, saw much of God's handiwork, greatly enjoyed it all, but tried to practice preambulatory prayer. It helps to keep the windows of the soul closed to all around. He had not yet learned to link life's recreations with the God who gives us all things richly to enjoy. The banks were still deep and narrow, and a natural pleasure at that point seemed a form of temptation. A light heart hinders my gravity. How I long to walk with him. A sleepy, poor reading, a great romp with the children. Perhaps this hinders. I am a lonely man. He seemed at this point to condemn secular reading but it was a constant struggle to keep away from it. Praise and blame are outside my path. It is Christ I must walk with. My snares are reading and foolish talk. I am called to walk with God. I feel I am playing with divine things, and I need to keep balanced as to life's sorrows. My body is Christ's home, a solemn, thrilling sentence. It made me clean some, some things unsuitable off the bookshelf and sent me to my knees. Shall I not give him the last keys of the house? He was setting up a rigid scaffolding for his future life, and he never for himself forsook that early, stern attitude and self-discipline. He struggled to acquire it, and as a young man he intensely conscious of the struggle. But later it became habitual, and the whole edifice so sufficed with the light of love and joy that the scaffolding became invisible. In fact, it's difficult to recognize in the ascetic young man, the father who later marched into a cafe accompanied by a hungry schoolgirl daughter who was meeting and carried away by the delight of the reunion, astonished the waitress by asking for the largest, best ice cream you have in the shop. Right to the end, beneath his large-hearted generosity and general enjoyment of life, there beat the heart of a Nazarite. In 1906, he wrote, My birthday today. What a ten years. I certainly see my greatest snare, personal luxury, not excess, but luxury. Paul kept the rein upon himself and so conquered and became God's man. God presses this on me. Ease and comfort is drifting work, and I must not go downstream. Looking back over a lifetime of rigid discipline, he sounded out a clarion call in some of his last lectures on 1 Corinthians 9. Now, to make it quite sure of this business, says Paul, I'm going to do two things. First, I'm going to be a racer. With his eyes on the tape, every bodily desire and form of freedom that might make it hard to win the race is going to be surrendered. 
And secondly, like a boxer standing in the ring, every muscle ready to rain his blows on the other man, I take this body, the vessel of which I am prepared to serve Christ, and beat it black and blue to keep it ready. In these days of self-indulgence and easy living and high standards of comfort, do you suppose there are no Christians entrapped and weakened by the appetites such as eating and drinking and similar things? Are there none who put family and wife and child before the interests of the Lord Jesus? Are there none cursed with covetousness to whom the lure of gold may become a permanent evil thing? I keep under my body lest having preached to others, I myself might be a castaway. The use of his holidays seemed to have worried him. They were usually spent on the continent, giving away tracts or visiting meetings. He looked forward to them with trepidation, his pleasure clouded by the fear of wasting time or relaxing. My continental trip will want much grace and much prayer. Evil waxes powerful, but God, how rich to know his love. How it fences me round. Though recreation and travel proved powerless to satisfy that burning young heart, he had his own joy. Often at this time it was eclipsed by the sense of his own unworthiness and the thirst of his aspirations. But it was a joy so real and deep that he was almost sometimes overwhelmed by it. And all his life it made him in some ways a completely self-contained man, apparently quite independent of his circumstances, Work daily gives more joy. Oh, what a master is Christ. How is it all don't love him? The final use of redemption is the reputation of God. God has made me a happy man. I worship him for it. Study the word. Perhaps the best two evenings I have ever spent. Almost too much joy in the Lord. Simply fagged out, but happy with the sense of his love. I can count on Christ every step of the way. I was never freer or happier in my life, and I can at least feed his sheep in in these perplexing days. Nowhere is rest but in him, in his love and his service. Wonderful meeting on Samson's death. These are my sweetest times. The word tastes marvelously fresh and glows in my heart. Fine time and train over God's silent love nearly broke down at the table, overwhelmed with God's love. More and more the study and the ministry of the Word were becoming the passion of his life. Young as he was when he was beginning to be talked about as a Bible teacher of no ordinary merit, he was taking part in the weekly meetings for employees, held in the big London stores such as Whitley's and Showbread's and assisting Lord Radstock in his well-known drawing room meetings. In spite of a nine-hour working day, he seldom had an evening free from preaching engagements, sometimes in London and sometimes much further afield. A lady in Sheffield has recalled some of those weekend visits when Harold Sanjin would board the afternoon train and arrive in time for the Saturday evening meeting. Weekend after weekend, for months on end, and at other times, Mr. Sanjin sacrificed much for Sheffield. It was in the days before tape recorders or general knowledge of shorthand, but a group of us used to take notes, and by comparing them we could practically reconstruct the lectures. 
Those notebooks are still consulted, and perhaps the greatest part of his life work has been to give a love of Bible study and the thirst to learn Greek to hundreds and hundreds of young people to whom he had been a father in Christ. Mr. Sanjin would take a train from London and go direct to the prayer meeting, which preceded the address on Saturday evening. On one occasion, we feared he had missed the train, but a search found him in downtown schoolroom stretched out on a table in agonizing prayer. After speaking on Saturday evening, Sunday morning, Sunday school, and an open-air meeting at 3.15, and a gospel meeting, as well as leading eager discussions around dinner and tea table, he would catch the midnight train to London and sleep in the station waiting room until it was time to go back to the bank on Monday morning. His Bible notes must have covered thousands of loose uh, sheets which he kept in perfect order. He would work through a book at a time, giving a series of lectures on it at different meetings. The study was pure sweetness to his eager intellect and hungry heart, but he agonized over his lectures. He criticized his own style ruthlessly and subjected himself to searing self-examination. He judged himself before God and was never for one moment carried away or deceived by the applause or the approval of his audience. Packed meeting, arrived home at 7 a.m., I fear I haven't enough sense of the holiness of the Lord's presence, and I'm not sensitive to spiritual direction. I need to help souls, not merely preach. A full day, but lack the fullness of the Spirit, and confess it is sin. I have tried to display too much. My object must be Christ alone, not a fine sermon. Cheap to a degree. Poor word given in haste at morning meeting. It never pays to be in a hurry in his presence. If others play jack-in-the-box, don't you. Lack of prayer prevents power. When shall I learn this lesson? The work of prayer grows on me. Oh, to practice it. Old sermons won't do. I must work out fresh outlines. There is plenty in the word, and my mind is a perfect jungle, ignorant and superficial. Not so many as before. My style drives the young away too demanding and above their heads. I need to be more simple presenting Christ. A bad day. Packed, overflow meeting, but all flat. I can't lecture on the Lord's coming. I don't live it enough. I was wrong in soul, away and out of touch. Got home heartily humiliated, though everyone else delighted with the meeting. One and a half hours after the meeting, to a crowd of young men, I drove them all away because I could not hold them. Oh, faithless servant, but what a master. A dispiriting lecture to a handful of resigned-looking people. London is a freezing place spiritually. But although he was quick to recognize his faults and deplore the difficulty he found in the need of keeping his soaring thoughts within the boundaries of the average intelligence, he could not fail to see that God was blessing, and he occasionally notes this with a sort of surprised humility, If I was a man of greater grace and zeal, this would be my life's work, holy, living preaching. What a broken reed I am, yet souls seem to heed. Spiritual power increases. I think souls are getting blessed. Lectured six or seven times, preached the best sermon I ever preached. Certainly, it was not by human power. Taking stock shows weakening spiritual fiber, and retrogression as my two besetting sins. This is to me, but how 
far and near Christ has been and how wonderful. He used my ineffective ministry. Only a great artist can work with such a broken, worthless tool and yet achieve grace, grace into the headstone. I long to meet my Lord. There are glimpses, too, in this diary of the seriousness of his preparation. His preaching was not due to any superficial worship or intellectual grasp. It was a result of communion with God and careful self-preparation. Has Christ a branch in me through which he can express himself, he once asked. And he realized increasingly that blessing depended on abiding in Christ and the spiritual warfare of prayer against the powers of darkness. A sleepless night, but I got my sermon on the floor between three and four in the morning. Preaching is a happy labor, but I must give blood every time. A fearful month's work lies ahead, and I must pray a great deal. I am clumsy and unaccustomed to his easy yoke. Jacob's lesson must still be mine. He prevailed. Will he give me what I want? Power with the angel? He knew that depression and discouragement could be crippling, and he was constantly on guard against them. God has called me to admire the love of Christ. I am kept from groveling by that. I am not despair of even a cinder heap of life. The tendency to depression must be resisted. These are testing days, and Christ is more than life. He never disappoints the heart, and I am linked to a risen man. He knew, too, the need of keeping himself and disciplining himself for the ministry, an instrument ready and fit for the Master's use. How close we need to keep to God for such a holy ministry, and how soon the bloom wears away. Remember you're a polished chef, and a breath can spoil the polish. Holy growth is subject to fixed laws, and I must obey them. Much prayer, true Bible study, full self-control, tight reins on thoughts. These are God's ways for me. Christ calls loudly for devotedness, and I must awake and put on my beautiful garment and work, for the night is coming. My life seems bounded by four verbs, am, ought, will, can. Am I wasting my life in half devotion and half worldliness? I long to be out and out for Christ. Asa did well in his youth, but wasted later years. Am I like that? The Clarendon Room Assembly has been described as follows. The Assembly at Clarendon Room, Notting Hill, London, where Harold Santon had his first spiritual home, had a distinctive atmosphere. Associated with it at various times were such notable people as the elderly countess of whom he spoke in one of his addresses towards the end of his life, Colonel Wesley, a close relative of Iron Duke, and Mr. James F. Hamilton, a most dignified and gracious personage who was a secretary of Cout's Bank from 1906 until his death in 1915. Mrs. Sandin writes that as she looks back, she feels that the writer of the Epistle of James would have approved of the spirit there. There was, for instance, no familiarity between the people who presented different classes of society of those days, but there was an absolute oneness in Christ and brotherly love. Harold's mother ran the women's meeting helped by her elderly daughter, Ella. All the family had Sunday school classes at various times. A boy once asked Evelyn, the youngest brother, Are you the St. John of the Bible? Oh, I always thought you were. 
Classes were held for boys in the evening by Harold's sister Ella, where she taught them handicrafts. She was a saintly woman, and there were was a, would, there would be a pew of full of deaf and dumb people at Sunday morning gatherings, and old Mrs. Schofield translated for them, a great attraction to the youngsters present at the meeting. Harold used to translate for them when Mrs. Schofield was absent. His brother Arthur could do it too. During the winter weather, there were monthly Bible readings when address would be given followed by questions. The place would then be full, people coming from all parts of London, and tea would be provided. Mr. W.J. Lowe very often gave the monthly addresses. He was a great friend of Mr. Swain and often stayed with him during Mrs. Sanjin's childhood. He was a very lovable, gentle man with a delightful twinkle in his eye and a very real scholar. He would frequently minister in French among the Darbyists on the continent and was deeply loved in Switzerland. He seemed to young Ella Swain to bear a resemblance to Elijah. Harold used to have Bible studies for the young men, not at the meeting, but in his mother's home. Everyone went to the weekly prayer meeting and Bible reading in Clariton Room. There were open-air meetings and lodging houses were visited and tracts distributed. The situation of the hall was just in the right district on one side for Sunday school work and the women's meeting work and the Sunday school flourished. Harold gained much by the company, advice, and criticism of older, more mature Christians, one or two of whom he counted his fathers in Christ, yet he held firmly to his own individuality and refused to copy the style of those he considered his superiors in his ministry. Speaking of two of his greatest friends, he wrote, I may and do heartily admire them and thank God who has carried both so far beyond me, but I must learn to speak only what I have really enjoyed with God. He denies no creative faculty. Yet there were also discouragements, and the year 1909 was one of the most conflicting opinions and real disagreements among those he most respected, something which caused him much unhappiness. He brought his perplexities to the light of God's word and took his stand once for all on the side of tolerant personal humility and broad charity insofar as they were compatible with basic doctrinal truth. And as the stormy year drew to a close, he could look back from a vantage point of peace. Christ and I have been through this year together, he wrote. Thank God no cloud rests upon my title to enjoy my Father's love. And tomorrow we'll be reading chapter 4, The Lover. I love you. I'm praying for you. And we'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.